Good to see you. Have a seat. My name is Brad. Nice to meet you. If y'all didn't get one of these books, do you want one? If you do, there's a stack of them over there. I thought I had a stack of them I was going to throw to you, uh, like they do at the ball game with the peanuts, but okay, maybe not. All right. Okay. How are we doing? Are we, are we around? We're good? Okay. Just making sure. Uh, so when I was growing up, I really wasn't the best at looking for things. Uh, like if something was lost or something, I, I was terrible at finding them. And I, honestly, I still am today. Uh, I'm terrible at finding things. Uh, but I remember this. I remember working with my dad, and there's this joke that you could say anything bad to me because I once held the flashlight for my dad uh, over the hood of the engine and was told I was doing it wrong the whole time, but that wasn't the case. Here's what would happen. He would, we'd be working around the house, and he would look at me and say, go to the tool shed. My dad had a bunch of tools. He was a contractor. So there was trailer, a trailer of tools, and then there was the garage of tools. And in his mind, it was organized. His mind, it was organized. Uh, and he would say, go back to the tool shed, grab me this drill or this wrench or this specific screwdriver and, and bring it back. And so I'd go and I'd go to the shed and I'd, I'd look at like this and look around and I'd walk back out. That's not there. And he'd look at me and go, yes, it is. Go look again. And I, fine. And, and I, 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 I remember doing this, and then I see it in my own kid, right? Because, we, you know, history repeats itself. And so I, I remember him not getting frustrated or getting a little frustrated with me. But then uh, I'd go look again, and I'd, I'd go, and I'd, I'd look. And I'd come back out. Dad, screwdriver's gone. It's probably on a job site somewhere. Nope go look again. And I, this whole thing would go on. And then finally he'd say, okay, I'm going to go with you. And as I'm going with you, uh, if I find it and it's there, you buy lunch today and I'm starving. And he'd be like, oh, okay. So we'd go back and, and he'd stand behind me and he'd go, I see it. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. And I'd look again and I'd just say, I, I, don't, I don't see it. So after a few rounds of this again, he'd say, look again. Look again. Then he got, he was playing a game with me. He'd go hotter, colder, hotter. And then soon it's like, there it is. And then he'd walk away laughing, going, I guess, we're, I guess I picked the lunch today. You better save up all your allowance for this one. And so it was just the, the thing of go look again. See, sometimes the familiarity that I had with the tool shed or the trailer blinded me because we're not used to seeing things. Uh, because we've seen it so often, we go, we go blind with it. Today, we're going to look at a parable that many of us have been blinded by familiarity. It's one of the most popular parables there is. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's been told a million different times in a million different ways and has many applications to it. It's, it's passed from scripture almost into this sense of folklore. And so it's even found its way into other religions and other teachings. It's, it's simple, uh, yet it's so profound. There's been laws that have been written about this. There's an entire Seinfeld episode titled The Good Samaritan. And if you've seen the Seinfeld finale, they got in trouble. Why? Because they were not good Samaritans. And so there's this whole cultural thing about the Good Samaritan. And so when we look at this, uh, we need to look again, because there's a lot of depth that is in this simple story. Sometimes people 
will look at it and expand on the cultural background and have this moral uh, lesson about rela- uh, racial and religious prejudice. That's an application that we could take from it. It's there. It's not wrong. It's there. But I don't know if that was the point. Sometimes we can look at it and we can say how we need to stop by every single person who's hurting on the side of the road and do everything we can to help somebody. And that's not a bad way to look at it. It's there. But what was the point? You see, this fascinating thing with parables is you can layer meaning on top of meaning and none of them are necessarily bad. But the goal that we have to get to is what was Jesus trying to accomplish when he was doing this parable? And it could be any one of those things. But when we look again and we look again, what we find is that there's so much depth to it that we can take into our lives and figure out what is the way that the Lord is telling us to step in to situations around us where people are hurting. When we do so, I think we'll get a clearer picture, not of who we should be like and who we shouldn't be like, but I think we'll notice that there are things we can actually do. So if you have your Bibles, it's in Luke 10. We're going to look at Luke's version of this. It starts in verse 25. We'll go through this. We'll look at, we'll point out some of the interesting cultural things that might read into a lot of the meaning that we can get from it. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself this lawyer is right he's got everything right in fact he quotes from deuteronomy 6 and he quotes from leviticus 19 Uh, both of these books say precisely what he just said on top of that he's quoting back something that jesus has taught in an earlier time and so he's quoting jesus to jesus which is like, hey, this is a good way to get some brownie points. Quote the teacher back to the teacher. I did that once in seminary. My teacher laughed at me. He said, oh, you read my book. Okay, and it didn't go well. And so this guy quotes Jesus back to Jesus. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. And he noticed the order that he puts there. Love God first, and then out of your love for God, there comes a love for your neighbor. There's, there's an order that was specific to Jesus in how he taught this. We love out of a response, we love others out of a response to our love from God. If we serve someone, hoping to be sustained by the response of the person that we're serving, we'll end up in frustration or disappointment. How many of you have experienced this? You do something nice for someone, and they don't say thank you, and you're like, oh, all I really wanted was a thank you, right? If you're doing something for the response of the other, you're not going to get really what you're looking for. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You love God first. And then out of your love for God, the overflow helps love for others and serving your neighbor. That's where we should start. And so Jesus is teaching this. The the lawyer this day, we don't know his name. He's an unnamed lawyer. He He understands it. And so, so far, this guy checks out. He's got the order right. He's been listening to what Jesus said. But he's also trying to do something to Jesus. It's not just an innocent question. Since when do lawyers ask innocent questions? Never? I don't know. I, I don't know many lawyers. But they, they, they're, there's always a trap going there, right? There's a question. The lawyer's trying to get to something. It's like a therapist asking you how your day went. You're like, I don't know how I should answer this because I don't want to get into a long conversation. And so the lawyer's trying to trap Jesus. He says, Jesus says back this, 
you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, this is where this guy gets a little testy. Uh, He wants to justify himself, is what Luke tells us. Justify is a nice way of saying this guy wants to be the most intelligent person in the room. He wants to look good, and he's trying to upstage Jesus. He wants to ask the question of Jesus, maybe, so that he can trap Jesus in Jesus' answer. And and so this is where the context begins to play a massive part in what the story uh, will mean that is going to be told. What lies at the center of the lawyer's question is a clash in thought of that day having to do with what comes in the future. It's, they had a way of thinking, and it was a common question. How do I inter- inherit eternal life? Who is my neighbor? Eternal life, to, to the first century Jew, there were two ways of looking at it. There was the life now that we experience, and then there was an age to come. And what this lawyer is trying to get to is what is Jesus' view of Israel in the age to come? And does it match up with his way of teaching? This was the debate. This was the trap. So the lawyer quotes Jesus back to Jesus in an effort to trap him. And so Jesus makes makes the man answer his own question. And when he agrees, the lawyer wants to justify himself a little bit further and says, who is my neighbor, which was designed to further smoke out Jesus's thoughts or heretical views of what they thought. And so he's trying to get Jesus into an argument. Now, it doesn't produce the answer that Jesus is looking for or for what the man hoped for, because what was at stake both then and now is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our sense of security, or if we will see it as a call and a challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world. This is the, the central crux of the issue this man is getting at. Is it just for Israel's well-being that we love our neighbor? Do we just love Israel, or do we love the entire world with the grace that Israel's been given? Remember the promise that was given to Israel back in the day. I will bless you, and so that you may bless others. This was Israel's calling, and this was the debate. What does it mean to bless others, and who's the other that we should be blessing? So Jesus answers him with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and he went away leaving him half dead. Now, robbers in those days, when they would rob you, and and we've probably all heard that this was a very dangerous path, when they would rob you, they would not want to beat you up. If you resisted, then they would use force. So this man fought back. And when he fought back, he was beaten. And so he's robbed, he fought back. The consequences of him fighting back, unfortunately, were now he's beaten, stripped down probably to his boxers, and he's laying on the side of the road. What happens next? A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed down the other side. There's a detail that we have to look at. Was the man who was beaten Jewish or Gentile? We don't know, okay? We don't know where he came from. We don't know who he is. 
He has no identifying markers. He is just a person on the side of the road. A priest comes by. There were, two, there were three types of people that would serve in the temple that day. There were priests, there were Levites, and then there were what called laymen or volunteers in the temple. Okay, so the first person we see is the priest. And these three people are essential to understanding the story. The first person we say is a priest. He's on his way down the mountain road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Priests those days would serve two-week terms in the, in the temple, probably once or twice a year. They'd get called in kind of like a reservist. They would go, they would serve, and then they would go home. And so he's on his way home. Priests also in those days did pretty well financially. So it's likely that this priest isn't walking. He's likely got some sort of transport. He called the car service or first century Uber or whatever they called it back then. Uh, he's, he's not walking. It would be undignified if he, was to, if he was to walk this far. And so he's got some sort of transportation. In those times, people were, were notified or noticed and identified by clothes they wore or the accents they spoke with. So the priest walks by. He sees a man on the side of the road, naked and unconscious. Is there any way to identify this person? No. Again, we don't know if this person is Jewish or if this person is a Gentile, which is an important role, which is an important thing that we need to see in this story. If this person was Jewish, for sure, the priest would be compelled to stop and help. It would be his service to help. If he's not, and he does help, he's in a world of hurt. If this person is dead, the priest has defiled himself, according to Jewish law, and he can't serve in the temple. Not only can he not serve in the temple, when he gets home and he's been gone for a couple weeks, he can't go into his house. He has to go back to the temple, go through the ritual cleansing process, which takes some time and costs some money, and he would have to foot the bill, and he'd be stuck in Jerusalem for another couple weeks. If this person is dead, and he helps them, and they're not Jewish, and he doesn't say anything about it, he's defiled himself to the point where if he goes back to Jerusalem, he can actually be beat, beaten to death by the rules of the Mishnah. There's a lot at stake for what this priest could do. There's a lot that he has to think about. We look at the priest and go, what a jerk. Yes, true. Should he have helped? Absolutely. But can you understand why he passed by? He doesn't know what to do. He's stuck. Even being accused of him helping would be a detrimental to his life, to his family's life, and everything that's going on to him. The priest faces a dilemma. He's doomed if he does anything. He's condemned if he doesn't do anything. And so he chooses to pass on. Next we see, who are the three people that served in the temple? Priests? Levites. Who's next in the story? The Levite. So too, a Levite, when he passed, came to the place and saw him on the and passed on the other side. Levites were kind of like priestly assistants. They, they served in the temple. They, they were sometimes assigned to priests. So you have this Levite who knows that this priest is ahead of him. We don't know if the Levite's walking or riding at this time or if he missed the Uber. We don't know. And so the Levite's walking by. He sees this person, knows that the priest had passed by earlier, 
and he's faced with another dilemma. Will the priest pass this same guy? Am I to up show the priest ahead of me? And if I take him into town and the priest didn't, that's going to make my priest look really bad. So he's faced with a dilemma. And he's got some cover. He didn't want to make the priest look bad. The priest didn't help. So I'm just following in the footsteps of this person that went ahead of me. And so he's going to pass by. If the Levite picked up the man, goes into Jericho that night, puts him on the back of his donkey, and he's riding in, the priest sees him, and the priest goes, that man's unclean. You're now unclean. You have to go through all of these ceremonial things as well. So the priest, the Levite, doesn't do anything. He's stuck too. So let's look again. Stories like this, you keep looking again, looking again, like Brad in the tool shed. Look again. What else can we see? A priest, a Levite walk in. Now there's an expectancy. A priest, a Levite, and a what? A layman. It's kind of like a joke. A priest, a Levite, and a layman walk into a bar. No, this is different. You're expected to see layman, but what do we have? A priest, a Levite, a temple worshiper should be next, but this is why the parable is explosive. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, then put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So here's the shocking part. And we know this. We've heard this story a thousand times. It's a Samaritan. Were Samaritans and Jews on good terms? Absolutely not. This is the hated person, okay? That's the first shock. It's the no-duh. Yeah, okay. Shocking part two is hearing this parable told by Jesus. This is where the wounded man would now be assumed to be Jewish because he would be allowed in the inn at Jericho. So it's at this point where, you, where the readers or the hearers would go, Oh, he's Jewish. This is the problem. So it would be acceptable for the man to help, uh, for the Jewish man to be hurt and, and, and helped by another Jewish man. It's unacceptable for a Jewish man to be helped by a Samaritan. Now go back to the priests. The priests were in the wrong. They should have stepped in. Go back to the Levite. The Levite's in the wrong. They didn't see this until they got to this part of the story. This is how you expect the story to go. And now you have the Samaritan coming in, breaking up the formula of how we're supposed to listen to the story. He breaks into the story as not just an outsider, as a hated outsider. He's moved by compassion, which is another word for pity. He spends his own money, his own resources, his own reputation. He could have been hurt by transporting a Jewish man on the back of the donkey. Yet he walks into Jericho and pays for the, pers for, for the hotel. Two denarii is two weeks' wages. So it's not just a couple nights. Two weeks' wages. And if there's more, I'll cover it. A Samaritan helping a Jew. He transports him into a Jewish city of Jericho. The, the common thing for this, and I was trying to figure it out with Dylan, was imagine a Western Okay, an old cowboys and Indians type of thing. Imagine a Native American Indian riding into Dodge City with a cowboy with arrows sticking out of his back. How's that going to go? Not good. 
that's the equivalent. It's a great setting for a Western because you've got to figure out who did it and what's the thing. Work on that if you write things. But this is the same kind of tension that he's feeling. He's walked into enemy territory. It's not a safe place for him to be in. But finding the end, he paid for it, and he gave more than, more than what was needed for this man to get back to health. And then Jesus asked this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell at the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. The original question for the Samaritan, as you may have noticed if you look again, is never answered. Jesus turns the question around and requests to whom, uh, about the request of whom is, is am I supposed to be a neighbor to? And he turns the question around and says, who's in greatest need? The Samaritan became the neighbor at his own cost and at his own inconvenience. And of course, we all know the lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan because they hate each other so much. Instead, he says, the one who showed the greatest compassion. So the lawyer leaves that day without a chance to justify himself. He can't obtain a material, uh, the eternal life in the age to come that he's been looking for because he was challenged beyond his own capacity. He was unwilling to be a good neighbor. Okay. We've heard this story a million times, right? Even if you're new to church, this is not an unfamiliar story. It's been applied in a, a lot of different ways. We're used to hearing that we need to stop and care for people on the side of the road when we're driving or when we see someone in need, and, and that's true. You should. If, if you're compelled to do so, pull over, slide in reverse, and do what you can. Change the tire. Go get the gas. This is a good thing to look at. It's also been applied to teach us who our neighbors are, and oftentimes they're the people we don't even expect. Oftentimes our neighbors are the ones we hate the most. And we're supposed to love them. We're supposed to care for them. We're supposed to love the person we hate the most, which is challenging, but it's also a pretty good application to this parable. I think if we're, I think if we're all challenged by the actions of the Samaritan, but what struck me the most is when we look again at it. The Samaritan, uh, uh, look again at what the Samaritan did when he jumped in to help when everybody else moved on. The temptation is to sit around when you see an injustice or you see something happening, is you sit around and maybe you do what I do. Maybe I'm talking to myself this, these last couple of weeks and I'm looking at it and go, oh, that's a problem. Somebody should do something about that. And then what do we do? Let's change the channel. <laughs> Time to check my social media. Let's move on with it. Samaritan didn't do that. He saw the problem and compelled by what? Compassion. The text calls it pity. Pity is another word for compassion in the Greek. He moves in. He did something. He didn't wait for somebody else to do it. He jumps in and does something. There's nobody else in the story. There's no one that comes after the Samaritan. And it's convicting for me because I don't often do that. Sometimes I see a problem. And again, I say somebody else should do something. I, and somebody else should do something about what I'm seeing. Somebody else should do something about what I'm hearing. 
I'm not saying that we all need to jump in and solve all the world's problems. You and I are not built to be the saviors of this world. That's Jesus's job. That's not the point of the sermon. But how often do you feel compelled to jump into something and then move on? Is it more than once? How often do you see something going on around you and you go, eh, whatever, I'll move forward. I do it. I don't think I'm alone. Sometimes I find myself saying this, you know, (coughs) excuse me, you know who should fix this? The church. Oh, the church should jump in and fix this issue. And, And we're probably right. Do you think the same thing? Yeah, the church should jump in and fix this. The church has stepped in and fixed many issues. The church has also stepped over many issues and not gotten involved. But then I start thinking to this, who's the church? The church should fix this. When we hear church, do we think of an organization, the building, the pastors, the, the staff, if there's a staff? Do you, do you, do you, is that what you think of? Do you think of a place where you go every week or whenever your schedule allows or however many times a month for actually America in general, it's 1.6 times a month is the average church attendance? Is that what we think of when we think church? It's not what the Bible thinks of when we think church. So should the church fix it? Yes. Who's the church? The biblical picture of the church isn't a bunch of pastors going around doing all the work and the staff going around to help them. The biblical concept of the church is a group of people called by Jesus, filled with the power of his Holy Spirit, being, being gifted and sent, utilizing those gifts and that sentness to, and their natural gifting to change the world around them. That's the church. So should the church do something? Yes. Who's the church? Congratulations. We are the church. We're collectively the church. So if we want to sit back and say, well, the church has failed all of these things. Yes, you're partly true. But who are you blaming? The organization or ourselves? And I'm lumping myself into it. I don't, this isn't a, a shame fest. No, no, no. We are the church. And when we blame the church for doing something, there's a finger pointed out at the organization. But what's the old adage? There's three and a thumb pointed back to you. We are the church. And if that's the case, we're the priests, we're the Levites, because the people who passed over this man lying on the side of the road were essentially the church of that day. We're a part of this. We're a part of the problem. So when we sit back and wonder what will the church do, I think the best thing is this. I don't know, you tell me. What will you do? How are you going to respond? What is God compelling you to do in this situation? I'm not trying to scapegoat churches, uh, especially from their responsibilities. There are times when the church of the organization needs to step in with the resources, the church's connections, the financial abilities, and often we see this happening. The best examples are often the times when you don't hear anything because when a church does something right, it doesn't go around beating its chest saying, look what we did. It's not the point. And a church that does that isn't about the work of Jesus. It's about attention that it draws to itself. Did you know that the most successful ministries in churches are not the ones that the organizations begin? 
the best, most efficiently ran church ministries are the ones that have been brought up from the people. When God has laid something on your hearts, and you say, you know what, God's telling me I need to do this. And then the church, in what is needed, if it is needed, steps alongside of you saying, we have resources, we have all of these things that can help you do what God has told you to do. Our partnerships with the Roar Commons for Bethany was began by a congregant. Mops ministry that we have at Green Lake that serves all six locations began with a congregant. The food bank that's at uh, Bethany Green Lake right now began with a congregant. Our connections worldwide with Robley Alto, with uh, uh, World Relief, with housing at-risk women, how'd those begin? Congregant. Our east side location that's meeting right now in Kirkland began with a group of congregants in a living room. The most successful things don't happen from the top down with the church. What I'm trying to say is if you feel compelled that God is leading you to do something, do it. Like the Samaritan. The one that's not expected is the one that does it right. What's God leading you to do? There are times when the body of Christ has moved and when those times are people compelled by the Holy Spirit to step in, those are the times where it seems to work. Success looks different for every single adventure that we go on. But the best, most successful ministries are the ones that come from the Holy Spirit compelling the individuals in the church to do something. There are times, however, more often than not, uh, it, it isn't the church's organization, a church as an organization that needs to be stepped in. Instead, what is needed is the body of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the physical presence of Jesus in the world around them. So what's God stirring in you? Now, how do we do it? How can the organization of the church help? The good Samaritan stepped in and in doing so gave it a perfect example of how we follow Jesus into the world around us. Some early church fathers, when they, when they look at the Good Samaritan, people like Augustine, Ambrose, people like Origen, uh, they look at, they, they, they go through the parable and they try to say, this means this, this means the same thing we do today. Who am I in the parable? They get to this one and they say, the Samaritan is actually a picture of Jesus who's walking down the side of the road, sees a person who is hurt and jumps in at his own cost. Look again at the story. Is that the perfect example of Christ? At his own cost, at his own risk, at his own detriment, stops, binds the person's wound, and then puts them on the back of his horse or donkey and rides him into town. Paul talks about this. Philippians 2, verse 6. Who, being in the very nature of God, and he's talking about Jesus in this point, did not consider equality with God something to be used at his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the, way, uh, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so you have Jesus, who is an outsider from the unexpected place. 
He's an outsider who comes into the situation, uh, both in the story, and he's an outsider in the very context in which this parable is told. They don't know what to do with him. He's different, and he's asking him a question. And Jesus tells the Samaritan story as a picture of himself and what he is up to. He steps in where the rest of the religion has failed, where the church has stepped over, where the temple has failed, where, Jew, where the Jewish nation failed to live into their calling, Jesus steps in to fulfill it. And the challenge he gave to the lawyer is the same challenge he gives to us. Go and do the same. In other words, go and be Jesus to the people around you. Uh, if, in fact, if you look at the word go that's used at the end of Luke 10 and go back to the very beginning of Luke 10, it's the same word that he tells and sends out his 72 disciples. He tells them to go, tell the news, the kingdom of the Lord is now, here. And then it's the same word at the very end, go and do the same. I don't know if you hear this and you think, man, I don't have the energy to solve every issue of the world throws at us. That's not the call here. You and I have very limited capabilities. I'm sorry to inform you of this. Uh, you can't solve the world's problems. You were never meant to solve the world's problems. What problems can you solve? What problems can we step into? The ones right around us. The ones that happen to our neighbors. The expectation isn't for you to go and change everything. The expectation is to change the life of the people who you are closest with. Here's what we can do. Sometimes... We can offer a kind word to somebody. It's saying hello to the hurting person in your office that you can tell has had a day. Hey, how you doing? A kind word. It's, an encour it's encouraging someone who's down. Maybe it's an appropriate side hug or whatever your office allows. I don't know. It's an encouraging word to someone who's at the end of their rope. Perhaps it's saying hello to the homeless person that's walking down the street and you happen to cross paths. Sometimes just a word will do it. Other times, it's even more simple. <laughs> it's a look. I don't know about you, but my temptation is oftentimes not to look at certain people uh, or anyone at all. I kind of like to look at the ground ahead of me or the sky and the horizon and avoid eye contact, right? That's what we do. But perhaps being a good neighbor to somebody is looking at them, acknowledging their humanity by looking into their eyes. Don't make it weird by holding it for more than 15 seconds. That's when it gets awkward. You're now staring. Don't do that. That's, that's weird. But look, acknowledge their humanity. Look at them in the eye. Acknowledge the person. I don't think we understand how, how encouraging it is to look at somebody in the eye and maybe even, I don't know about you, but smile. Force it. You don't know how much of a look can impact someone's dignity when they're overlooked all day. Maybe you wave. Look at the person. And then, as needed, a touch, a look, an acknowledgement, a word, or a touch. Jesus, when he heals the leper earlier in Luke, sees the person's need. He comes to him with leprosy. And Luke is sure to point this out because Luke likes the little details. He says, Jesus healed the man and then touched him. 
That doesn't happen in every parable, in every healing. Sometimes Jesus just heals. He might be touching, but this, that's one of the few times where, where Luke points out that Jesus touched this person. Sometimes a touch is needed where the Spirit compels you to do more than look or give an encouraging word or, or, or smile or something. Sometimes the Spirit compels you to do other things. Maybe it is giving money to this person who's asking. Maybe it is buying an extra sandwich at lunch and handing it out to the person on the corner. Maybe it is giving something away that you have too much of. Sometimes maybe it is putting someone in a hotel for a night or two. Maybe it is giving someone a ride or a listening ear or a coffee. Sometimes a touch is needed. A touch, a look, a kind word. And in all of it, the common denominator is you and I embodying the church and Jesus to the people around us. We're told to do so to them. We're told to go. So as you look at the world around you, look again. Who's your neighbor? Look again. What unique abilities do you have as a Christ follower to be a neighbor. Look again. You have gifts. You have the tools. Look again. You might be surprised to see that you're the solution to the problem that you are facing. In Acts 6, there's a group of people who come in and they're, they're a little bit upset. And Acts is an awesome book and, and they're, they're not upset. It's, it's a group of six or seven uh, Greek men who come into the church. They come see Peter and James and John. And they come in and they say, hey, look, guys, at this normal food gathering, uh, we're noticing that the Gentile widows and orphans and, sh- and, the, and the immigrants are being overlooked when we're passing out food. And that's a problem. And Peter, James, and John go, yeah, we can see that. And they don't dismiss it. They come back and they say, you know what? This is a problem. And guess what, guys? You're perfectly equipped to be the solution to the very problem in which you are seeing. You see a problem in the church. Guess what? You're seeing this problem intentionally. Why? Maybe the Spirit's compelling you to step in and say, I can fix this. Or I know someone who can. I can bring attention to this. The people who fixed this problem in Acts 6, one of them was named Stephen, who was stoned the next day. I'm not saying that's going to happen to you if you bring something in. Uh, it might happen, but not by me. But if you bring something, it's going to be, it, you're going to be used by God in a mighty way. Spirit is compelling Stephen to fix this issue. Stephen steps in and fixes the problems that he sees. So who's your neighbor? Not only who's your neighbor, how has God equipped you to be the solution to the very problem in which you're witnessing? How can you embody Christ to the people around us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you've given us this example of how to be a neighbor. That not only this, you have gifted all of us to be just that, a good neighbor. One who cares for the world around us. One who not only sits back and notices the issues, but is willing to step in and solve the issues. And Lord, you've gifted each one of us 
by your spirit uh, with various gifts and talents and abilities and insights and words and personalities. You've gifted us all of these things so that we can go and change your world. Go be the presence of you to those around us. Now, Lord, we have all of these gifts. May we now have the courage to use them. May we step in a detriment to ourselves. May we step in when it might cost us something, usually our comfort. May we step in instead of waiting for somebody else to do it, instead of scapegoating another organization. May we step in and be you. And in doing so, may we accomplish what you've sent us to accomplish. In Jesus' name we ask.